Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 85. It's titled, Are You Home Country Biased? I often get asked whether I'm going to run out of things to talk about. I've done the 85th episode, so there's well over 40 hours of material. And sometimes it does concern me because each week I only plan these, these podcast episodes out about a week in advance, sometimes two weeks in advance. And so there's always the fear that this is the week I have nothing to say. But last week I got an email from Spencer. And he asked, he noticed that I had not done an episode on international investing. And I I double-checked, and sure enough, I hadn't. And so he had some issues or concerns regarding investing overseas. He's a U.S.-based investor. If you are based in Europe, you you would be essentially talking about investing outside of your home country. And he wanted to know, is it necessary to invest outside the U.S. And he referred to the logic employed by Jack Bogle and Warren Buffett regarding how large U.S. multinational companies get upwards of 50% of their revenue overseas. So why do you need to invest overseas? And a follow-up question he had regarding how to invest overseas if one chooses to do so, is it simply a question of buying an index fund or should you use an active manager strategy or some other type of investment strategy? That's what we're going to talk about today. And his question regarding just invest in the U.S., you get multinational exposure, is one I would often get from my U.S.-based clients when I was an investment advisor. They would, they would essentially ask the same thing. And I had my pat answer. I would say that Yes, multinational companies get most of their revenues, or not most, but a a larger portion of the revenues overseas. But since their stocks trade on U.S. exchanges, they tend to perform in line with the U.S. stock market, which makes sense because multinational companies are make up a large percent of, let's say, the S&P 500 index. And as a result, they trade in as a group like U.S. stocks, which means they're subjected to the fears and greed of primarily U.S. investors. The valuations is based on U.S. And it's a U.S. investment, even though it's getting its some of the revenue from overseas. What I would do with those clients, though, is I would then show them a number of pretty graphs and tables as part of an asset allocation study. Most of my clients, particularly in the mid to late 90s, you'd get a new client and typically they would not have any 
international equity exposure. Oftentimes, it was a very, very U.S.-centric, just U.S. bonds and U.S. stocks, and that was it. And so we would go through these asset allocation studies, and we would show what's the impact of putting 15% of your total portfolio in international stocks. And, and it, it seemed like magic, honestly, when we would do these studies, because when you use modern portfolio theory, if you assume that U.S. and international stocks are not correlated, in other words, they don't move in tandem, and let's say they're only partially correlated. So I, 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 it's been a really long time, but I suspect we would use a correlation of maybe 0.6 or 0.7. And so when you would add 15% of their portfolio to international stocks, generally you would, you would see very similar expected return, but the expected volatility, the, the up and down movement of those stocks from year to year would fall. So it would appear less volatile, less risky, and, and they would say, well, you're the investment advisor. That's what we're paying you to, for, to, to come up with advice like this. And yeah, we will invest in international stocks. And typically then they would agree to put 15% of their total portfolio in non-U.S. stocks, and that would equate to about 20 to 25% of their stock allocation. Now, there was no magic to 20 to 25% number. It, it was, essentially was a number that I thought that they would agree to. It, it was a number, some, some of it was precedent. That's what our other clients were doing. That's what you would see in the industry. But there, oftentimes it was because we knew that's what they'd be willing to do. Because what, what you see with institutional clients, they're always looking to see what their peers were doing. And at this, at this point of the investment environment in terms of what other peers were doing, having 20 to 25% of your equity allocation in non-U.S. stocks, that, that was considered the norm. Clients wanted to be like the, their peers, and so they would agree to do it. This idea, though, of keeping most of your investments in your home country is what's known as home country bias. And there's a study by Vanguard that uses data from the International Monetary Fund. And the most recent data used was from 2010. And I'll have, if you're a member of my insider's guide, you'll have, you'll have a link to this study in your in, inbox because I deliver it every week through the, the Money for the Rest of Us Insider's Guide. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. But if, you, if you're not a member of the Insider's Guide, go to episode 85 at moneyfortherestofus.net and you'll see a link to this study. But what they found is U.S. investors had 72% of their equity allocation in U.S. stocks, even though U.S. companies comprise just under or just about 50% of the global stock market as measured by market capitalization. And what's market capitalization? Well, that is the number of shares outstanding multiplied by the by its price. And so Apple's market capitalization would be Apple's share price times the number of shares outstanding. And so a, a country's capitalization would be all the stocks 
that make up that country or, or that particular index, their price is multiplied by the number of shares. And so you can weight that by a, a company. You can do it within an index over a overall country, or you can look at it across the globe. So on a global market capitalization basis, U.S. is about 50%. But your typical U.S. investor has about 72% of their equity allocation. And so they're overweight U.S. stocks. They have a home country bias. According to the same study, Canadians keep 65% of their stock holdings in Canadian companies, even though Canada comprises only about 5% of the global stock market. The Australian stock market comprises only about 3% of global market capitalization, yet Australians have 74% of their equity allocation in Australian stocks. And finally, UK investors kept 50% of their stock allocation in UK-listed shares, even though the UK compromises or comprises 8% of the global stock market. Why do most investors keep most of their assets in their home country? Well, that's what they're most familiar with. If you're going to go investing, you know what's going on in your economy, you're familiar with the names in the portfolio, and it's just... Once you start venturing out overseas, then you have to worry about, well, how stable are other governments? Are the fees going to be higher? So what, are, is the tax treatment going to be different? Is What about the currency? How am I going to deal with the currency thing? And Spencer referred to Jack Bogle, who is the founder of the Vanguard Group. He has done more to popularize passive index investing than anyone I know. And he is an authority, and he carries a lot of weight. I've heard him speak a number of times at conferences. I've used Vanguard funds for my former clients as well as personally. But what does he say about international stocks? He invests very, very little in them. And his rationale is the market is a great equalizer. And over time, he thinks international stocks will perform the same as U.S. stocks. So why worry about all these other concerns, higher fee, potentially higher fees, currency risk, and things of that sort? During an interview on Bloomberg, the interviewer asked Bogle about the U.S. stock market being more expensive than other international stocks. This was just, just a year ago. I'll link to it. You, you have got the link in the Insider's Guide. Look on the show notes. And he, he said, given U.S. market, the interviewer said, given the U.S. market is more expensive than the overseas market, shouldn't investors be less enthusiastic about U.S. stocks? Here's what Bogle replied. Quote, it would be nice to only invest when valuations are low. Moments of great depression in stock values are a great time to buy. You can't invest at 2009 valuation today. So what are you going to do? You have to invest at today's valuations. You can't not invest now. Choose to not invest and you are ensuring you will have nothing 40 or 50 years from now. You're investing for a lifetime. A 40-year-old probably has a 50-year life expectancy. That's what you're investing for. I am an indexer. That's well known. I keep it simple and have my money in the S&P 500 or a broad market index and the rest in the bond index. Bogle keeps it simple. He does not invest in international stocks. He has a very, very low percentage. 
in an earlier interview with Morningstar when commenting on how well emerging emerging market stocks had performed and how investors were plowing a great deal of money into that area, Bogle called it the rowboat syndrome. And what's what's the rowboat syndrome? Here's his quote. You are always looking back when where you know where you've been but you have no idea where you're going that's the rowboat and it's i don't think i've been in a rowboat but in a rowboat there's some ways to do it in a rowboat i think you're actually in the boat and you're rowing and you're rowing backwards so you can see where you've been but you don't know where you're going so bogle makes two excellent points Simple is usually better when it comes to investing, and we generally have no idea where the markets are going. Having said that, I disagree with what Jack Bogle says regarding international investing. He suggests U.S. markets will perform similarly to non-U.S. markets, but there is no way to know that, and Spencer alludes in his question to Japan. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
In the mid to late 1980s, Japanese stock performed very, very well, and they comprised over 40% of the global stock market capitalization. And Japanese investors are some of the most home bias in the world, according to a research study by Geert Beckert and Zhao Zheng Wang of Columbia University. I'll link to that also in the show notes, or you have it in the Insider's Guides. So they, they are more, they have even more in Japanese stocks, Japanese investors. So those Japanese investors who kept things simple by keeping all of their stock investments into Japan would have had a very, very disappointing investment experience over the past couple of decades. How disappointing? Well, Japanese stocks, as measured by the MSCI Japan Index, in yen, so this is in their home currency, so it would have been hedged, fell, well, it wouldn't be hedged because it's, it's the Japanese index, so it's Japanese companies in yen, they fell 68% on an absolute basis between the end of December 1989 and the end of April 2003. Since May 1994, that same index has returned only 1.5% annualized through October 2015, just over 1%. If a Japanese investor had discarded their home country bias and invested in a global stock market index, such as the MSCI World Index, and was, it was hedged back into the Japanese yen, so would have had no currency risk, that investment would have returned 7.9% annualized from May 1994 through October 2015. The Japanese investor is very similar to U.S. investor right now. They, they don't have, we don't have any idea exactly what markets are going to perform. But what Japanese investors did have, if they were aware, is they could have looked at the valuation of the Japanese stock market in 1989 and saw that it was overvalued relative to its historic norms extremely overvalued on a price-to-cash-flow basis, on a price-to-book basis, to some extent on a price-to-earnings basis. But you could have seen it, and they would have been prudent to not have all their eggs in the Japanese stock basket. That's an 8%, oh no, a 7 percentage point annualized gain over, what is that? That's 25 years? That's amazing. And which is why when we talk about, Vogel talks about international investing. And one of his concerns, and I've read some of his other material, is the fees are higher and it's going to perform the same as the U.S. But if you don't know how something's going to perform, then you want to be as diversified as possible. You want to have as many eggs as you can. And an example is you could purchase an index fund or an ETF that is global in nature. The Vanguard World Stock ETF has over 7,400 securities. It's invested in over 40 countries. The iShares, so that the Vanguard World Stock ETF, its expense ratio, we're talking about fees, expense ratio is only 0.17%. Now, that is 0.15% higher than you can get an S&P 500 index. On the other hand, you can get exposure to over 40 countries 
7,400 stocks for 0.17%. That is absolutely amazing. Now, that is a non-hedged ETF. You can get a hedge, something that's hedged. If you're a U.S.-based investor, a hedge, a currency hedged, the iShares Currency Hedge All-Country World ETF, that's a little higher expense ratio, 0.36%, but it's all in U.S. dollars. But it also has exposure, has over 1,200 securities in, in the ACWI, which they then hedge, with, again, over 40 countries. And so there's a way to keep things simple. As I look at my portfolio, I have about 20, looks like on my equity portfolio, 23% is in the iShares currency hedged MSCI EFA ETF. So this is non-US stocks hedged into US dollars. I have another 22% in the iShares MSCI All Country World ETF. That is a unhedged index, global in nature. And and I do that because I I don't know which way currencies are going. And so I have to cover my expenses in in U.S. dollars. And so some of my international exposure, I hedge back to the U.S. dollars and some I leave unhedged. So when periods of the dollar is strengthening, I'm fine. When the period of the dollar is weakening, I'm fine. They offset and you get some diversification that way. And then I fill that out with other, other holdings. If you remember the money for the rest of us hub, you can see my portfolio, not so you can follow it exactly, but you can see how I'm implementing the things I talk about on the podcast. So I don't have any active international managers, as as Spencer alluded to. Is is it better just to, to cap weight in terms of capitalization weight, just buy a passive international index? or to use some other perhaps active strategy. And I spent many years, those clients I mentioned, when I would put them into international stocks, generally we were hiring an active managers of firms like T. Rowe Price in the early days. We used Warbird Pincus. Later on, we used a firm like Hamsberger Global Investors, which was an offshoot. They broke away from Templeton. We used Templeton, but we tended to use these international shops that had presence overseas, and so the over, overseas research organizations, they were visiting companies. And as I look back now, that was absolutely crazy. I mean, they, they were good firms. Don't get me wrong. They were good firms. But the point of getting international exposure is to get exposure to dozens and dozens of countries in a very diversified way so that you have multiple drivers to your portfolio, multiple economies, multiple elements of fear and greed, different valuations of the different country markets. And when you hire an active manager, you're getting 50 stocks, maybe, maybe 70. So it is a very, very concentrated bet. 70 out of 7,000 stocks. Now, our job was to find good active managers, and and we did a, a fairly decent job of it. But today, If I'm investing overseas, I would rather be passively exposed to multiple thousands of companies because I just want to keep it simple. Now, there is a place for some some active elements in your portfolio if you choose to do that. But for the core, I think a passive 
non-home biased exposures. So, and and I think the simplest way is to do capitalization weighted because those tend to be the index funds and ETFs with the lowest fees. Next week, I'm going to Phoenix. I'm going to be at a, I think it's, I don't even know the name of the conference, Index World Index Conference, but it it's on ETFs, but there's a number of sessions on what's known as smart beta, which are essentially ETFs and, and perhaps some index funds that use alternative ways of structuring the portfolio, not just based on capitalization, where the biggest companies have the biggest weights. And so I'm going to do a follow-up episode on Smart Beta. I mentioned it briefly in an episode back in the early 20s, but it's it's time to revisit it. But for the core, my portfolio internationally overseas passively managed through an ETF. Notice I didn't say I am invested overseas because overseas markets are not highly correlated with the U.S. markets. They are in the sense that there's always a country going in a different direction. But during periods of crisis, markets tend to go down together. So on the hub, for example, when I'm showing model portfolio allocations and different weights to different areas, I assume that the markets and the asset classes are all perfectly correlated. So I don't, I don't want this free lunch. I mean, there's always this free lunch and asset allocation because you get the diversification. I ignore that. I just want to know what the expected return is. But they do perform differently. For example, the MSCI All Country World Index, so this is unhedged, all countries around the world are down 0.5% year to date. That's quoted in U.S. dollars. But that overseas, that IFA currency hedge ETF I mentioned is up 8.4%. So once you protect, because the dollar strengthened in 2015 year to date, that means if you're a U.S. investor in investing overseas and you've not currency hedged, then you suffered. But if you were a currency hedged, you essentially got the local returns of the overseas market. So in local currency terms, for example, the Austria, Austria is up 20% year to date. Belgium is up 29%. Yet on the same token, you have Colombia down 23%, Greece down 54%, Hungary up 52%, Ireland up 33%. It's all over the board. To Peru is down 28%. That's all in local currency terms. And so the point of investing overseas is to have as many horses in the race as you can get. Instead of just relying on one U.S. horse, I'd rather have multiple horses, multiple return drivers driving my portfolio return, both an element that is hedged and an element that is unhedged. The other consideration which is why I don't think one should be completely invested in their home country, is valuations. What is the expected return for U.S. stocks versus emerging markets, for example? And what is the U.S. valuation today versus the valuation for emerging markets? U.S. market, stock market, is overvalued. 
when we look at a measure of valuation, the dividend yields only about 2%. The dividend yields in emerging markets is 3%. A valuation measure for U.S. market is what's known as earnings yield. It's the inverse of the price-to-earnings ratio. The lower the earnings yield, the more expensive the market. The earnings yield right now for the U.S. market is 4.8%. That is one of the most expensive markets in the world. The earnings yield for emerging markets is 7.9%, almost 8%, so much higher. And as a result, and the emerging markets valuation is below average. I mean, above average. In other words, it's it's cheaper than its historical norm for emerging markets. So you have a higher dividend yield, a cheaper valuation. Emerging markets economies tend to grow faster or they're expected to grow faster than the U.S. looking out 10 years. Now, I'm not saying that right now some of them are really, really struggling. But the point is we can look at the valuations of U.S. stocks versus every other market in the world and the U.S. market is more expensive. And all things being equal, a more expensive market will lead to lower returns going forward. So on the hub, where I do 10-year expected returns for different regions, the U.S. market has the lowest expected return for stocks looking out 10 years. I've assumed 6%, 6% annualized. Now, there's a range that potentially could fall in, but that's lower then let's say the expected return for emerging markets over the next 10 years of 8% annualized. So you can't ignore valuations. The Japanese investors in 1989 should not have ignored valuation because in the end, the valuations got from expensive to cheap and it costs significant performance. I just checked the hub. The actual return assumption for emerging markets is 9% annualized over the next 10 years. These are all nominal returns. Now, I've done something in this episode that I don't typically do. I've quoted some specific securities. I've quoted some specific return assumptions, some specific valuations. This is a podcast episode being delivered at the beginning of December 2015. So if you're listening to this a year from now, these numbers won't be applicable. But it's important to put it into context to understand the principle. Valuations matter. It drives performance. And having as many horses in the race, as many players in your race matters. You want different portfolio drivers in your returns, not just within equity, but across asset classes. I have over 15 different asset categories in my investment portfolio. So I'm not dependent on any one driver of return. I have multiple drivers because I don't know which will do the best over any given period. I can wait based on valuation, based on market conditions, attractiveness, but at the end, I want it to be diversified, not because I believe in, I've quantified all the correlations, just Simple, common sense, have as many baskets as possible, as many drivers as possible, but be aware of valuations and be aware of market conditions. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. I've already referenced the Insider's Guide where you can sign up. Included in that is a summary article I send 
each week. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you would like more information on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, where you can get portfolio asset allocation guidance, some portfolio help, additional education on investing in the economy, you can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I am not providing security recommendations, simply education. Have a great week.